So um, I have my good friend Martin Allward here. Martin's a Dharma teacher in the Insight Meditation tradition. He's got a, a beautiful center in southern France. Um, probably he can hold 40 to 60 people in the center. Um, he's been practicing for many, many years. He went to Asia when he was 18 and um, kind of dropped out there for a while and became a sadhu before he kind of found his way to Buddhism uh, and is a wonderful teacher. We just finished teaching a seven-day retreat together at Spirit Rock and we've gotten to know each other over the last, I don't know, about eight, nine years at Buddhist meetings around the world and God knows where, but it's been a lot of fun. I was just visiting his center in, in France this year, in a beautiful center. Um, one of the hallmarks of his teaching is that um, um, he's been very focused on what does it mean to practice where we are? What does it mean to practice in our life? Not making some kind of split between practice being on a retreat or even on the cushion necessarily. That practice is our life and our life is practice. So we thought we'd you know, just have a chat, you know, with you all tonight. Um, and that we take questions or comments or if there's something you want us to speak to. And then we'll see, maybe one of us will speak or both of us will speak or maybe we'll disagree or we'll, we'll see what happens. Does that, that sound okay? Okay. So, and again, I've been gone a bit teaching. It's actually been a busy period of teaching for me this spring. I have a teeny bit more, and then I'm, and then I'm really around for, for a long time. But, um, you know, I like to hear what's up for you or what you're interested in or what's vital for you or important for you in your practice that you would like us to speak to. What would be alive for you or most, most interesting or or you think maybe might be most difficult for us to speak to that's always interesting so, um, Martin, I'm very interested in practice in my daily life and I am probably like many people very busy and I work in an area where there's constant bombardment I'm wondering if there's any um, maybe techniques or little things that you uh, suggest to help come back during the day when I... But if you really look, we get caught up and then at some point again and again and again, life keeps reasserting its immediacy to us, right? Thank goodness. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a comeback. I'm so sedu we're so seduced by the thises and that's and the dramas and the, the futurizing or the nostalgizing or um, whatever it is. So those moments are very, very interesting. The fact that life keeps reasserting its presence and just to really notice what you do with that and how easily we, the moment that that kind of miracle happens, we say, oh, oh, I was caught up. Where was I? 
How long was I gone for? Why was I gone for? I shouldn't be gone so much. I ought to be here some more. And then, of course, that's, that's the next. We're, up, we're off again. <laughs> so, rather than, I think, tips to come back, just to see how well you can, or how interested you can be in the fact that you keep coming back. The fact that life keeps on uh, waking you up. And it's such a shame that we're in such a hurry. No sooner life wakes us up to, uh, to kind of do something complicating with the process. So that's, that's uh, one reflection that comes to mind. There's another thing, which when you just speak about busyness and bombardment, it seems when things are busy there's a kind of inner impulse to go faster and faster to keep up with the busyness. And in a way that I can't really explain and doesn't really make sense, it seems to be that if we slow down, one, we tend to be more efficient and actually get more done in some way. But two, when you slow down, you have loads more time to do things. Now, I can't really explain how that works, but we know well that time is, is uh, uh, you know, doesn't really just last 60 minutes in an hour. You know? It's like when you're really engaged in something, time can go very fast. When you're really wanting time to go fast, time can go very slow. Right? And sometimes we can drop into a condition where time seems to stop or lose all its relevance. And I'm not suggesting that you might drop into the kind of completely timeless realms while being bombarded at the office, right, or whatever. But, again, it's just to kind of to challenge the assumption that in order to meet this bombardment, I need to go faster and faster, which increases the sense that life is bombarding me, which increases the sense of pressure, which increases the sense of needing to kind of, you know, battle against it all. And uh, I certainly found that to be challenging because you're going against that strong momentum. And yet it's extraordinary how much space can open up in the, mid, in the very midst of all that you're doing by actually stopping for a moment and just re-engaging in a slower way. You know, really letting, and letting your body slow down. If you really let your body slow down and you, sit, you let your muscles slow down, you, let your, you contact your breathing, that'll really support your mind slowing down as well. If you try to just slow your mind down, you're actually adding one more thing into the business. And now I've got to slow down as well as all those things I've got to do. Right? So there's, a, there's a, a few reflections. And really letting your body lead with that is really helpful. Uh, yeah, right at the back. Um, this is a question for both of you or either of you. You can find amongst yourselves. Um, how do we, in those day-to-day, the, like the moment-to-moment, very painful experiences, how do we let go and allow ourselves to really land in rather than you know, running away from the suffering in that, right, towards the sun. So, like, day-to-day, like, moments. 
um, well, in some ways, if you if you're really already overwhelmed, um, you know, you need to take care of the overwhelm. If 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 what's happening is you're is actually that you're really you're you're overwhelmed, it's kind of too late for whatever that thing was. What's most current is the sense of overwhelm, and it might be that you just really need to take care of yourself in that, you know and uh, not try and deal with everything. It's very difficult to really meet something difficult if the sense is that it's completely overwhelming. If what you're noticing, which it sounds like, as you say, is, oh, that's so difficult, that's so problematic, that's so unpleasant, I want to push it away, it's a, it's a step too much, maybe, to feel like, oh, I've got to not push it away, I've got to really land in it. You know, because what's most primary is that you're pushing it away. So let yourself really feel the pushing away. You know, when we hear teachings about, classically, greed, hatred, and aversion, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, right? So you're expressing, uh, talking about that piece of aversion, pushing away. We easily get the idea, oh, if I'm practicing, that shouldn't be happening. I'm practicing to not have any aversion. But actually, we're practicing to really understand aversion. And we understand it by letting ourselves feel it. So it's not so much that you need to land in that experience, right? You might, you'll land in the experience when you've dealt with the aversion. But if what you're experiencing is aversion to it, don't, try, don't jump over that. Let yourself feel how much you, you're struggling, you don't like it, you want to push it away. Okay, well, what do you mean when you say when it's overwhelmed? Um, I guess you lose the ability to have any awareness whatsoever. So, like, you okay. said, you've gotten past that point where you can, you know, um, bring your mind into it, and you just need to focus like what you Okay, so if you feel like you've lost the ability to have any awareness not whatsoever, two things. Firstly, the fact that you know you've lost the ability suggests there is some awareness there. And secondly, if it really feels to that extent that it's too much, it's too late, there's nothing you can do, you're completely overwhelmed, take a shower, uh, lie down and have a rest, uh, bang the wall, uh, <laughs> you know, something that's actually going to give some resources, take a walk in the park, listen to some music, you know, something that will actually help you just cool things out and take some space from it. You know, if you feel like the situation's completely unworkable, then there's a clue in there. If it's unworkable, you can't work it. So, uh, you know, it sounds like it's, you have to see, it sounds like it's not necessarily completely unworkable. Right? If you're able to really, you know that you're resistant and you're able to contact that. But if you, if you, sometimes it's just gone too far. You know, sometimes I notice you know, people are really trying to, to deal with what's going on for them and it's too painful or they're, too, they're just too distressed by it or they're too tired or they've just, been, they, they've just been kind of too rigid around it. And for instance, when they're at our place in France, sometimes the best practice for people, I say, please go and sit with the fish. We have this kind of carp pond. Go and hang out with the fish. You know, there's beautiful lilies growing at the edge of the fish pond. So sit with the lilies, feed the fish, relax. 
And there's a way of kind of, you know, nourishing the heart, getting back some sense of oh, capacity to be here, which then in its turn is really helpful for whatever the next wave might be. You have different background noises here to my place. <laughs> yeah, we're not disturbed by the cows at all. <laughs> when, when he says go and hang with the fish, it's not what they say like in The Godfather. Where, you know, <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> I think there's one piece that may be helpful is how we understand practice and what would be called right view or right understanding. Um, because there's always this understanding, oh, how do I make, how do I bring, you know, my practice into this part of my life or into this part of my life or into that part of my life? And there's a slightly different way to conceptualize it, which is how do I bring my life into my practice rather than my practice into my life? And so if we're, if we're holding a view or an understanding of what practice slash life is, then this is all grist for the mill. And, it, and in that sense, we don't have to do it perfectly or even the right way. In some way it's like, and, and, and Martin was, was pointing at this, in some way we'll, we'll make practice another thing we have to do that's a problem. And then if we're not doing it, then, it, then we're really we're screwed up. And um, I mean, this may sound very simplistic, but in some sense relaxing a little bit about the whole notion of practice because our whole life is practice, really helps practice happen kind of organically. And then the other piece I'll say, which is, again, a little bit to both pieces, is the, um, you know, I like the gym metaphor. You go to the gym, you develop certain muscles. The more you develop the muscles, you don't think about the muscles when you go to use the muscles. And so it's why formal, what we could call formal practice, like retreat practice, is very helpful. So a regular retreat practice is going, you know, a few times a year, taking some time to let the muscles or the capacity to be mindfulness deepen in an intense way and then let that seep into the rest of our life in an organic way. And then the question, gets a little more further refined, one of the things that can happen and why retreat practice is valuable is because we're thrown onto ourselves in an intensive setting for, you know, five days or a week or two weeks or a month. And in that setting, we discover a tremendous amount of resources that we have, inner resources, uh, to address, to meet different situations which are both wonderful and difficult, as anybody who's been on retreat knows. And so there develops a certain kind of trust in our resources that we can, we don't know how to do it. 
And, and in the not knowing, we can begin to trust that. We can begin to say, okay, what, it's, it's, even if we come up with some really good answers, they're not going to work all the time. They'll, they'll work sometimes, but they won't work all the time. And so beginning to trust our own resources, our own inquiry into what's needed, what's helpful, what's skillful, right? Sometimes you go and swim with the fishes and sometimes you take a shower and sometimes you, but, but it's going to be for the, the, the knowing of that is based on your own trust in yourself. And here's where I, I sometimes see students, and I don't know if you can, might comment on is that people are a little bit afraid to make mistakes. And mistakes are the best thing in practice. They will teach you so much about how to respond to reality, to life. But if we, if we get, oh, there's only this one way and I've got to just be with my breath because that's what they said, then it, it's not going to work. You know, breath isn't going to work. You won't even be able to find your breath sometimes. Or like my, my basic instruction would be find your body as one of the great, I think it's a great instruction, something I use all the time in both these situations. Find your body, find your body. It's, you know, it's, it's tangible, there's something here. But even that, that doesn't work all the time. So what I would like to encourage is a kind of um, ongoing inquiry of engagement with the questions that you're actually bringing up. And let's see what we discover over six months or a year, a couple years of exploring exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Hi. 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 I have a question. I, I think it's I think it's about right work or the concept of right work. So um, I uh, I work for an accounting firm, and um, part of it is I think well you know I'm trying to sort of bring more enlightenment to this you know festival of greed and way trenches and me you know. And then part of me is really struggling with, is that how I should be, you know, putting my energy? So, so, and then I think, well, but you know, practice is everywhere you are. So, so I just wonder if you could maybe uh, speak to some of that. Well, the one thing that caught my ear as you were speaking was that there was something about you should be something. And I don't do the should thing at all, like you should be something. Uh, I think it's a really valid question that we all wrestle with these days, which is we all have to earn a living, how we earn a living, and how to contribute to society in a way that's helpful and not harmful. And, um, and if we find ourselves in a form that is questionable, how to, exactly what you said, how, how do we bring the Dharma there? What does it mean to bring the Dharma there? You know, people need accountants. 
and hopefully really honest accountants, skillful accountants, intelligent accountants, people need that. It's actually a, a service for people. Um, again, for me the question, is, at least tonight, is coming back to view or understanding. If it is practice, then what does it mean for you to practice there? What does it mean to bring yourself very fully? Like if we don't even use, let's, let's play for a minute, don't even use like maybe mindfulness or anything like that, but just to bring yourself there fully, to give, your, to give or be generous in that way with your intelligence, with your creativity, with your integrity. Uh, what does it mean to, to wholeheartedly engage your work as one part of practice? or as a way to practice in, in, in any kind of situation where we have to work. And, you know, we could, we, there, you know, there are many, many work situations we actually don't want to be in necessarily, but we find ourselves there. And so there's, there's two levels to the right work. One level that people often think is, how can I find the work that expresses my heart in some way, or my love of the Dharma in some way? And that's, that's wonderful if you can find it, but not everybody will find that kind of work. And so then the question is, how do I express the Dharma where I find myself, whatever it might be? And that's a, that's a fascinating engagement with life, with ourselves, with the totality of practice rather than with any one piece. And so integrity, presence, wakefulness, creativity, heartfulness, love, you can, right there, right where you are is possible. And then we can watch how that impacts ourselves, and maybe we have an impact on the people around us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Um, so this year is the first year in a while that I don't get to go on extended retreat. Mm -hmm. And I, I just started a new job, so I'm really feeling like it would, that would support me, but I can't. Right. So Remind me of your name. Victoria. Victoria. Victoria's first year, she can't go on extended retreat, starting a new job. Uh -huh. Resistant to going on a one day because it's frustrating. I like, I anything you got, I'll take. <laughs> Any, anything we've got, she'll take. Let me see what I've got here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I'm going to give the same answer. Mm. You know, really, how do you make this practice? instead of, oh, practice is on retreat. Like I said, retreat practice is great, it's very important, very helpful. But if, we, if, we're, if that's all we can do, then we're all in trouble, right? Because we're here. So... What do you love? 
Yeah, what do you love about the Dharma or practice or what, what draws you? Just being able to create that space to get out of the chaos. To slow down enough to really check in and see what's going on. Right, so to slow down enough to really check in and see what's true, what's happening. Okay, so what do you need to do that right now? Okay. Well, even now, can you take a moment and check in and see what's really going on? But even sometimes, like I feel like extended retreat, you get, you can check in, you can see what's going on, and you have the space to process it. Yeah. Sometimes I can check in, oh, it's there, and then I just have to go. Right. So... Again, the busyness or the hurriedness of our lives. You know, it's really helpful to sit regularly. And you've heard me say this, but I'll say it again. If you want to sit regularly, you have to be ruthless. I mean, I, I just don't see it happening any other way, especially in busy urban life. You have to be ruthless. And there can be a little fun with that ruthless thing, <laughs> really. It's it really, the other way it's talked about in the Dharma, it's a kind of warrior or Vajra attitude, like, I'm going to do this. And this becomes important. And it helps, uh, it gives us some of the basis for practicing everywhere else. Because it's true, we need a little, we need to be able to connect with ourselves. And if we're not connecting with ourselves on a walk or in nature or, you know, in swimming or something like that, the meditation is very important. So I, I really, if you, if you, as, as we're developing that capacity and that view, we want to develop the muscles. Merton's going to say a little more about this. Um, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I wasn't kidding when I, when I was like, I don't care what happens when I meditate so much these days. Really. It's a little bit more like what Martin said. I, I just like to sit down and, you know, I know how to do certain techniques and I can get concentrated pretty easily if I want and this stuff. But a lot of times I don't care what happens because it, it's all just happening. I don't even have to be responsible for it in a certain way. And there's still awareness and there's still a knowing and everything happens. It really little like he said, sirens come by except, of course, they're in my head. And, you know, and it's not a big... There's, but there's a relaxation about all of that rather than the idea it's wrong or it's bad or it's something's, you know, should be some way. And that's very freeing. That's very freeing. And, and so again, you know, my, some of my frame of reference is what I've learned on retreat. But then the integration or the, or the continued practice in daily life 
A lot has to do with just relaxing about it all. It's all just happening, right? Our thoughts, we're all going to, we're going to think. You're not going to stop you. You can stop your thoughts a bit, and that's fun. But, you know, they come back. <laughs> and they still do whatever they want to do for the most part. You still have to be a little discerning not to believe about 95% of them, right? And so there's, again, there's a view or an understanding or an attitude that we can take towards our experience that is not just mindful, but it's kind. It's kind. It's, it's, it has a little bit of a certain kind of wisdom that is um, um, uh, both kind or compassionate. Are we losing the mic totally? Is that what's happening? No, it's okay. And it's also, there's a little lightheartedness about it all. I mean, yeah, it, often if I really take my mind seriously, it's just dukkha. You know, it really. And, but if I see it for what it is, it's just... And good luck, really. About the job. Yeah. So how does the right livelihood play the role there? The right livelihood, you know, from the Buddhist teaching is basically where he talks about uh, a number of areas not to not to do, not to sell arms, not to sell drugs, not to. Um, I can't remember what else. Poisons, not to deal in um, uh, uh, human trade. In other words, slavery. Um, you know, it's the Buddha gave a number of teachings about areas that cause suffering, and so the idea is to try to work in a way that doesn't cause suffering. Well, this, the financial world is suffering. How to deal with it? Buddha didn't have no, but he did deal with people who were kings, princes, merchants, rich people, uh, uh, shopkeepers, courtesans. You know, people who dealt in commerce, and he, he, you know, gave teachings for that. It's it's not so dissimilar. It's maybe it's faster and there's more money. But it's it's the same. It's basically it's about greed and and harm, and so that that becomes a lot of the question. What are the other right livelihoods? The wrong livelihoods. Wrong livelihoods. Butcher. butcher. Yeah. You shouldn't be a butcher. <laughs> Kill animals. Not not great for your karma. You want to? One of my updating the word livelihood for lifestyle, and I think that's that's kind of more helpful for us maybe in in the kind of contemporary life.
the idea of, of reflecting upon and cultivating a wise lifestyle because it's much broader than the work we do. And of course it's complex. You know, I, uh, prob so much of, of, the, of the world we live in, we're implicated in a, a kind of complicated and difficult and, f and uh, issue-fraught life, right? And yet we have the, ch the opportunity to make kind of informed choices about that in all the areas of our lifestyle. You know, the way, the way we interact with people, the way we use our money, the way we use our resources, basically. You know, how we direct our money, our time, our attention, our care. And to align ourselves, to align our lifestyle, you know, the way we use our time and energy and money, etc., as much as possible in accordance with what's important for us. But I think we can get kind of rigid about it and say, oh, well, in this, you know, I, I work in this kind of world, and we can kind of trace the suffering in it. You know, so for example, you know, I a lot, a, much of my time is spent exploring Dharma and sharing Dharma teachings with people, and it's like, oh, that's, that seems like it, that qualifies for a right livelihood. Somewhere. But then I've got the issues of travel and the carbon offset, and uh, you know, we can all. There's a lot of complexity in the world we live in. So rather than trying to get it just right and worrying about being wrong. There's many, many opportunities for the, our lifestyle, for what we do and how we spend our time and energy, etc., to be reflected upon. And there's lots of things we can do to make a difference. And it's kind of amazing. I live in you know, rural France. Isn't the most progressive kind of cultural milieu. <laughs> but Northern California, you know, like for instance, if you want, you know, you want to buy organic as a lifestyle choice, quite honestly, it's pretty easy here. You know, there's, there's a kind of, there's a lot of opportunity to align your lifestyle with things that feel nourishing to you. So I just, I think just that word lifestyle is, is more helpful for us and accords us much more possibility than what can seem like just narrow categories of livelihood. Yeah. Hi, my name is Lori. And my question is along the same lines. I had the good fortune of moving in the place Friday. So I stand in that to living in and I'm struggling with uh, finding a sense of sacred space. I want to meditate daily and home growing. I want to start over again with yoga. Say so, so that last one again, I didn't hear I think so. I'm not quite sure what you mean by sacred space.
Uh-huh. So the intention. Okay. So the intention to meditate is there. The intention to do yoga is there. Sounds like, if I understand. But the act. But the actual meditation and the actual yoga isn't there. So the intention to meditate and the intention to do yoga is there, you say, but the actual meditating and the actual yoga isn't there. What do you think you what do you think you need to do, Laurie? Yeah, well... If sacred space seems important, you know, there's whatever ways you might come up with to create some little area of your home, but it sounds like the, you sacredize that by aligning your actions with your intentions. So if you intend to do yoga and meditate, do yoga and meditate. But don't set the bar too high, because that's, that's where often the struggle is. We set the bar high, and then we fail because we've said it idealistically high, and then we engender feelings of failure. Oh, I'm not managing. Oh, I've got the intentions, but I'm not doing. Set the bar realistically low. Like, not I'm going to sit for, I've got to sit for an hour every day. If you're not managing to sit at all, that's not realistic, right? Maybe 20 minutes, and like at least five days a week. But a couple of days, you know, that's okay if I don't make it. You know, something, you have to check in for yourself where it feels like it's, it's not just like the bar's not like lying on the ground, right? So you're not even going to notice when you step over it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So that there's a little bit of step up, but that it's, it's realistic. And then with a low bar, you, then you make it. And you engender a sense of confidence, of inner trust, of the fact of aligning your attentions with what you're doing. But once you set that bar and you check in that you make it realistically low and manageable, then you make sure you do it. If you'd otherwise, one of my teachers says, you're castrating your will. And you don't want to do that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious about your 20 years of non-retreat and um, obviously you have a family practice, kind of. And um, do you have times of sort of irritation and impatience? And Never. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, but if you, if you did have... <laughs> how, how would you work with those... So, uh, what's your name? Jennifer. Jennifer's saying, if uh, if there, in twenty years of non-retreat uh, practice, if there's any irritation uh, or anything, and if so, how I work with that? Y- 
you know, I, don't, I really don't know what to say about how, how I work with it. It's, it's a little like, it's really a little like Eugene was just saying about, uh, you know, irritation. If irritation is what's there, irritation is what's there, right? And so uh, to the extent that I recognize that irritation is there, there's some degree of, uh, you know, when I, to the extent that I recognize it, it doesn't get such a grip. But the state of irritation might well be there. You know, I've got two teenage children. There's plenty of... And also, the, they live with me in the center I'm teaching at, which is kind of humbling, because whatever kind of idealization I might get from the students, where I sort of breathe in, dispense the wisdom and breathe out again, then at lunchtime, my children are there kind of you know, complaining at me and uh, whatever that might be. So... In some ways, I think actually that what, that's one of the things that's been beautiful in our in our centre is that there's something very real there, and we and I hope that that's contributed to people getting a sense of of Dharma practice that's kind of immediate and juicy and in the midst of life that isn't expecting to kind of lift off to some sort of abstract realms that's not kind of we're not expecting to sort of come to retreat and leave looking like. <laughs> ideal a golden statue that's completely impervious to you know but rather something that's juicy and alive the the freeness that we're exploring and opening up to is a freeness that's that's that has its freedom in the midst of all these movements that include might include irritation rather than being a freedom that's kind of lifted out and kind of lost some of that stuff so, you know, irritation doesn't seem to be such a problem when, we, when, um, when we're here enough to, to, to feel its, its movement and, um, and sometimes then it just passes through and sometimes it doesn't pass through, it gets stuck and we just fail again and again and again. One mistake after another, you know. Somebody once defined, I don't remember who it was, defined this practice, was it, was it Suzuki Roshi, as one mistake after another. And I think Trungpa Rinpoche described it as one insult after another. <laughs> and then see what happens as you live with the irritation rather than the idea you shouldn't be irritated. People often miss how much life there is in the irritation, how much life there is in anger. Now, I want to be careful here because we're not actually suggesting acting out on the irritation or anger because that's also suffering, especially for other people if we act out on it, but for ourselves also. But to really let our life live within us and then we were kind of the stewards of that life in its different forms and it's a beautiful way to practice because then we don't have to be some way that all the ways life appears becomes part of practice So I think we're at the end of the evening. Thank you so much for joining us, Martin. Uh, great to have you here. Thank you. Um, um, we'll take a minute. Let's sit together for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.